As we continue today with our study of the book of Acts and with it also our development of the great big transformational idea that we're talking about this year, that life for the believer in Jesus is mission, I want to start today by asking you guys a question. I want you to think about it, wrestle with it, play with it as we talk, all right? The question is simply this. Do you want what you want for your life or do you want what God wants for your life? And I want to tell you that I know some things about this question, like, for example, that there's the real answer to the question and then there's the right answer to the question, and I know that by experience. And I'll tell you what else I know by experience. The real answer and the right answer are not often the same. They're just, they're not. At least not in every moment and category of our lives. Like, I think that there are times and seasons in our life where we're just like cruising through life, man, and it is going better for us even than we had planned or arranged or orchestrated, and so we're all about God, and it's real easy to raise our hands and sing about His faithfulness, isn't it? Yes, Lord, I want what you want for my life because as I evaluate what's happening now, at least, it looks pretty doggone good. Now, however, I reserve the right to change my opinion if things go off the tracks in my opinion. No, that's not the right answer. It's not the way that it works. It's when you raise your hands and you praise him and his faithfulness in tears because it's not going the way that you want that your heart is manifesting the right answer. And it's also true for categories of life. You know, Lord, I want what you want in this category and in this category and in this category, but we all know that this category, this one is mine. This is the one I really worship. This is the one I really covet. This is the one I really hang on to. This is the one that I don't trust you with. Well, that's not the right answer. Do you want what you want for your life or do you want what God wants for your life. And by the time we get to the end of the message today, here's what I'd like you to have in your hands, figuratively speaking. Of course, I want you to have the real answer and I want you to have the right answer. And perhaps most importantly, I want you to know how it is that the real answer can become the right answer. That what you want for you can become, in fact, what God wants for you. That his desires for you can become your desires for you, even when it might require you to praise him in tears. Because that is the place of joy. And that is the place of contentment. And that is the place of fulfillment. And that is the place of satisfaction. And very, very significantly, that is the place of mission. That is the place in life where the gospel of Jesus Christ, his mercies, his message, move forward most powerfully in you and through you and in and through this church as well. It's the place of mission. And here's why that matters, because life is mission. We pick up our study today in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, where Luke, who is the author of this great book, says this. He says, now there were in the church in Antioch. Okay, time out. Sorry to stop so soon. But what does that tell us? It tells us that in terms of the storyline or the narrative of this book, all of a sudden we're back at this church in Antioch that we studied way back in chapter 11 a few weeks ago, and that we learned some things about that are actually important as we now return to this church. And so, for example, we learned that this is the church that was the first place full of Christians to take this gospel message to Gentile people who did not know anything about the Hebrew Old Testament and were not in any way, shape, or form looking at least consciously for a Jewish Messiah. They were bold enough and believed in the power of the gospel enough to take the gospel even to them. That's That's a pretty significant first. They were also the first people on the planet to be called Christians. The word means Christ ones. It means Christ 
people. So basically what happened is these people in their city, okay, became known as Christ's people. Why? Because the pagan people in their city looked at their lives and their lives so clearly manifested the reality that these people followed this one called Christ that they then just started calling them Christ people. Oh yeah, he's a Christ person. She's a Christ person. That's a Christ one. Those are Christ people. Now there's like 19 sermons in that, okay? And it's difficult for me to resist them. Is that what the people at your office would say about you? Is that what the people in your school would say about you? Is that what the people in your neighborhood, forget would say, do say? Because your life so manifests the reality that you follow this one called Christ that you're just, you know, you're like a, well, you're a Christ people, Christ person. There's another first in this church, and we'll see it today. This is the first church to send out world missionaries, foreign missionaries. And in doing so, by the way, in ways that they no way could have foreseen, changed the entire world. It is not too much to say that you and I would probably not be here right now. There would not be a Rio Vista community church. We would not believe in Jesus. We probably, you know, if it wasn't for the decision that these guys make today. A decision that forces them to declare... All right, here's the deal. Do we want what we want for us? Or do we want what God wants for us? What do we want? And here's why it forces them to declare that. Because as we also learned back in chapter 11, this church, which was really killing it for the gospel in this city of Antioch, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a strategically valuable place for the spread of Christianity. A strong church there was a big, big deal to Christendom. All right, that church that was killing it for the gospel was led primarily by two people. Now, there were more than two people in their leadership team, and we'll see a whole list of names here in a second. So you'll see there were at least three other primary leaders in this church, but these two guys, as we saw back in chapter 11, okay, they were the MVPs. They were the two most indispensable people in this church and in what God was doing in the lives of these people, in the families of these people, and in the midst of this city for Christ. These guys were like irreplaceable, or so they thought. That reality is what's going to force them to make the choice. They're going to demonstrate by what they do that, in fact, they want what God wants more than they want what they want. And that's the way it shows up. Just as an aside, it doesn't show up so much in what you say. It shows up in what you do. It's clear. And it becomes unmistakable in our actions. And so Luke says this. He says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and now he's going to give us a list of the primary leaders there at that church. And I want you to see that the list begins and ends with these two guys. It's like Luke is coming to us with this list, and he's saying, okay, the beginning and end of this leadership team, okay, yeah, it, it's these two guys. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and who does it begin with? Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We saw him last week. And then Simeon, who was called Niger. He's an African. It's a very diverse church. It's actually really cool. Lucius of Cyrene, who may or may not, we don't really know this, be, the, be Luke himself, which is kind of an interesting thought. Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is the guy who cut off John the Baptist's head. 
Think about that. Like this guy, Menaean, who becomes a leader in this church, grew up in the household of, alongside of, the guy who went off ultimately to cut off the head of John the Baptist. Talk about the gospel taking this guy in a totally different direction. It's pretty amazing. And then Saul, better known to us as the Apostle Paul. Barnabas and Saul are the MVPs. They're the men. They're the guys through whom primarily it's happening in this church. But now notice what happens next. Luke says that while these Christians at Antioch were worshiping the Lord and fasting and asking this question, hey, God, you know, what do you want us to do next? So they're seeking God's will for them, okay? Ever ask that? The Holy Spirit answered their, que- their question, and you're like, right on. I love it when he answers my question. Do you really? I don't think they loved it, at least not initially. It's a painful answer. It's a costly answer. It's an answer that must have felt to them in the moment very severe, like almost harsh, frankly. And it's a confusing answer. It's an answer that you look at and you go, sorry, you know, I can't do the math on this. This, this doesn't add up for me. I, I don't understand why you would want to do this. And, you know, maybe we didn't hear you rightly. And no, he spoke clearly. And it's an answer that forces them to decide by what they do, to declare to the world, okay, <laughs> do we really want what we want or do we really want what God wants, because the real answer and the right answer aren't always the same, but they can be, and that's the point of the message. More than anything else, that's what I want you to see. They can be, and that's the place of joy and contentment and fulfillment. That's the place of purpose. It's the place of mission, and life is mission. And so Luke says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting and praying and saying, okay, God, what do you want us to do next? The Holy Spirit said, okay, I'm going to give you an answer and it's going to be painful. It's going to be costly. It's going to feel maybe a little harsh to you. It's going to seem severe and it is going to be terribly confusing. There's no doubt about that. But here's my answer. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, which if you've been doing your personal worship in the book of Acts, you already know is the work of foreign missions. So God is coming to them and he's saying, okay, here's the deal. I want you to take your two MVPs, your two most indispensable guys, the two guys whom I have used more than anyone else to mold you, to shape you, to form you, to make you more like Jesus, you, your families, this church in this city, the two guys that humanly speaking stand at the center of all that is great and good that I'm doing here. All right, those two guys, send them away. Send them off. He's coming and he's saying, look, I want you guys to do for me what my son Jesus did for me, and not just for me, but what he did for you. And that is to knowingly, intentionally, willfully, obediently, missionally sacrifice something very precious to you. And not just for a little while, but for good for the sake of my mission in you and for the sake of my mission through you, which for them meant they needed to send Barnabas and Saul away and say, you got to stop and go, all right, well, then what does it mean for me? And here's what I've discovered. Most folks already know. You know, I mean, a lot of people are not scratching their head right now going, gee, what is that one thing that God talks to me about every time I come to church and that's why I don't like to come? 
Whenever I open my Bible, it seems like that's the topic for me. So I flip pages to look for a different topic because I don't want to talk about that topic. I feel like there's this wall between me and God every time I go to him in prayer, you know, because there's this elephant in the room called thing that I want you to sacrifice for me that stands between me and him. And as long as it's there, it's just kind of awkward and it's just kind of weird. And okay, that thing, that's it. Whatever that is, that's what he would have you to let go of. And you're like, but here's the problem. Tom, I don't want to let it go. My real answer is not my right answer. That's the point. It can be. And I want to learn from these people as to how. So Luke says again, verse 2, he says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting and praying and saying, Hey, God, what do you want us to do next? The Holy Spirit said, and it's pretty severe, he says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the foreign missionary work to which I have called them and which will require you to send them off. And then, of course, it simply says, and so they did that. Amen. That's it. End of story. Now we're done. It's not what it says. It says, and then after fasting and praying some more, that's the point. You're like, well, why did they have to do that? They fasted, they prayed, they got their answers, send the guys away. It's just acting on the answer at this point, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. That's exactly it. And that's what it is for me too. And that's what it is for you as well, isn't it? It's not the answer. We know what the answer is. We've just got to get our hearts and minds around the answer. That's why they had to fast. That's why they had to pray. They needed to do that so that the real answer, which was, heck no, they won't go, okay, becomes the right answer, which is even though this is painful, even though this is costly, even though this feels kind of harsh to me, and I'm not going to lie, even though this doesn't make a lot of sense, I mean, my goodness, Lord, wouldn't it be better to keep these guys here for the good of the mission? I mean, you know, we could have these guys train up like 50 missionaries and send them out. We don't have to send them out, even though it's confusing. It doesn't make sense. Lord, if this is what you're calling us to do, we will send them out in our tears and we will sing of your faithfulness. And notice how they got to that point. Again, Luke says, verse 3, after fasting and praying some more, they then laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and no doubt in tears sent them off. It was through this process of worshiping and studying God's Word and praying and fasting together as a community of believers, you see, of wrestling with this thing as a community, as a faith family, that they came to genuinely and authentically want for themselves what God wanted for them as well. And I hope you hear things in that like personal worship. Prayerfully, meditatively, reflectively opening God's Word day by day by day by day and interacting with it. Not so much of what does God's Word say, but what does God's Word say to me? Because He speaks through that when given opportunity. I hope you hear in that gathering what we're doing right now and that you become more than casually associated with it. You grow by gathering. You're made into the image of Christ by gathering. 
I hope you hear plugging in and, and finding someone or some group of ones to live in community and wrestle through the hard parts of faith and pray together through life's issues with finding somebody who knows how to do this personal worship and prayer thing like you don't know how to do and don't wait for us to organize. Just do it. Someone whose life you respect and whose spiritual life you look at and go, yeah, I need to, I need, I need to know how you do this and, and then be that someone to teach them how to do it. It's the value of community. And then of service, of waking up to the reality that God did not make you for you. He made you for himself. And if you spend your whole life on you, you will waste it. If you spend your whole life on him, you will gain it for eternity. It's a beautiful thought. See, these things are here, not just so that we can come to know what God says or check it off some spiritual checklist because that's what Christians do. I just don't, I don't want to know merely what God says. I want to know God, you see, because as you come to know God, as you come to fall in love with God, as you come to see God and his greatness and his glory and his beauty and his splendor and his wonder and his power and his wisdom, you get a whole different perspective on yourself, don't you? And what happens is all of a sudden he becomes the delight of your heart and he replaces you there. And as you begin to delight your heart in him, guess what else happens? Your heart becomes more like his. Your mind becomes more like his. Your desires become more like his. And suddenly you find yourself desiring for you what God himself already desires for you. And when you and he desire the same thing for you, when you ask him for what you and he both desire for you, what does he do? He says, here. And that's the place of joy. That's the place of contentment. That's the place of satisfaction. That's the place of mission. And that's really important. Because life is mission. It really is. I think I shared this with you guys, but last summer, my oldest daughter, who was 18 and uh, who has graduated from high school this Friday, um, and I'm going to be speaking at her baccalaureate uh, service on Thursday night, so please pray for me. <laughs> I'm going to start working on that this afternoon. But um, Morgan and I had the opportunity to go on a camping trip, and I've shared with you that I'm not really a camper. You know, they're just some things that are sort of deal killers for me, things that don't make sense, actually, like, why sleep on the ground if you can sleep in a bed, you know? Why do things in the woods that you can do in a bathroom? Just throwing it out there. And that's really where the whole conversation ends for me right there. But it was such, it was such a unique opportunity. It was with focus on the family, and it was called Adventures in Fatherhood. And what they do is once a year, they gather up a group of dads and kids, and then they put you together in pods, five dads, five daughters, within a year or so of the same age, in my case. They give you two guides, and then they send you up into the mountains with like a 65-pound backpack. And when you're from Florida and you're hiking into southern Yosemite National Park and it's like 8,500 feet with 65 pounds on the back and it's been a while since you played high school sports, um, you think you might die. Uh, so there is sort of a, there's a possibility I'm going to meet my maker here, kind of a, a thing that you experience. But then after you get there, then you have to do all these extreme things that I also really don't thrill over. Like I'm not a big heights guy and yet we're rock climbing together, you know, and we, we climbed up this big, huge 
rock that just juts out of the earth. And then once we got to the top, uh, we repelled together, the two of us on different ropes next to each other, like 300 feet straight down. And I recited the 23rd Psalm the whole way down. And um, yeah, everybody laughed but me. I, I was serious as can be about that. Uh, all the way down, and then Morgan and I, you know, wept and kissed the ground and swore we would never do anything like that again. Um, but it was really an amazing, unique kind of experience. And on the first day, they came to us as dads, and they said, all right, look, on the last night around the campfire, under the stars, and you have no idea how many are out there until you're out there, you're going to read to your child a blessing that you write, so you better get writing. And so I had to wrestle with this and think to myself, all right, if I have to just say one thing, what's my one thing? And I want to read it to you if I can. It's not easy because it's this one thing. This is it. It's like the heart. So pray for me. I said, Dear Morgan, I remember the day that mom and I brought you home from the hospital like it was yesterday. By the way, as I'm reading this, she's like sitting right in front of me. And as I read that line, she went, oh, great. (laughs) Here we go. Oh, man. But I do remember it. A precious, beautiful baby girl, a gift from God that we stared at in wonder and awe as we literally watched you sleep and checked repeatedly to make sure that you were still breathing. And I remember as well the overwhelming feeling of responsibility that I felt for you as I realized that, humanly speaking at least, your very life was dependent upon mom and me. My, how things have changed. My precious baby girl has grown into a precious young adult and has grown ever more precious to me with each passing year. My beautiful baby girl has grown into a beautiful woman and has manifested a beauty of heart and soul and care and compassion, a love for God and for people that far exceeds even her physical beauty, and that is saying something. This gift from God whom I stared at in wonder and awe fills me today with a greater wonder and awe as I see you navigating the perils of adolescence and young adulthood with a wisdom and grace and attitude and perspective that far exceeds your years and certainly far exceeds where I was at your age. And the more independent, or the, and, oh, I'm sorry, and the one who came forth so completely dependent has grown a whole lot more independent than I care at times to admit. I've said this many times, but it still stands true, and I want you to hear it. I cannot wait to see what the Lord will do with you. Did you hear that? It's carefully worded. I didn't say, I cannot wait to see what you're going to do with you. I honestly don't care unless it lines up with what the Lord wants to do with her. That's what matters. Life is mission. So I cannot wait to see what the Lord will do with you, however large or small it may be in the eyes of others. May it be great in His eyes. Which leads me to one word of advice, and of course you knew this was coming. It is simple and yet profound, for it comes directly from the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, verse 4. Morgan, this doesn't mean that if you will make God your great love and passion and the supreme value of your life, that He will then make it His job to fulfill your personal agenda. 
It means that if you will make God your great love and passion and the supreme value of your life, he will then quite literally give or implant his desires into your heart. That is to say, he will transform your personal agenda for your life into his personal agenda for your life, and you will then begin to most ardently desire for you what he already desires for you. And here is the really cool thing about that. God will then freely grant to you what both he and you desire for you. That is the fulfilled, joyful, purposeful life that everyone longs for, but that is only found through a daily delighting in God through faith in Jesus Christ. And what brings me the greatest joy when I see and think about you is that I see this growing and developing in you even at this early age. Morgan, I have sought and continue to seek to delight myself in the Lord, and He has certainly granted and continues to grant to me the desires of my heart through the great gift of you. That is His grace to me, and I am truly thankful. So, with all that said, you have my blessing and benediction on your life. You also have my love and care and support and backing as you go forth. Finally, you have my admiration, respect, and friendship as well. I am very proud of you, Morgan Hendricks, and I love you very, very much. And then I sign it, your earthly dad. Now, why did I sign it, your earthly dad? Because that's all that I am. That's it. There is a far more significant father, guys. And she ought not to live her life for me, and she ought not to live her life for you, and she ought not to live her life for herself. She ought to lay down that life that she might truly find life and live it for him. That's the way it works. That's the idea. And the challenge for her and the challenge for me and the challenge for you and the challenge for us is to do that. It is to learn to so delight ourselves in Christ that He becomes the delight of our hearts, that we care more about what He thinks than we think, what He wants than what we want. That his desires then become our desires, and when his desires are our desires and we ask him for what he and we desire, man, it's an awesome place to be. In fact, it's the place of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and mission. And that matters because life is mission. So do you want what you want for your life? Or do you want what God wants for your life? What's your real answer? You know the right answer, don't you? But most importantly, maybe have you seen how the two can become one? See, the action step's easy from here, isn't it? It's to learn to delight yourself in the Lord. It's to look at personal worship and go find the friend who knows what they're doing and have them train you in the doing of it. Again, not as a religious checklist kind of a thing, not as a I need more knowledge kind of a thing, though... That's helpful. But as a I-need-to-know-God kind of a thing and become so taken with Him that I give myself fully to Him and in doing so truly live. 
It's gathering. It's plugging in. It's serving. It's doing things like going to the personal evangelism training class because you know what? As you do these things, you're going to become a Christ person. And then people are going to come to you, like Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer. See, that assumes something, doesn't it? That they're going to recognize that you're different. And then they're going to ask you about the difference. And then you get to tell them the only difference is Jesus. You learn how to do that in that class. And I want to challenge you as well to go to Haiti. Here's what happens universally, it seems to me, to folks who go. They go there, and God uses them to change a little bit of Haiti. A little bit. To bless people more than they realize, frankly. But God uses Haiti to change a big part of them. And he brings them back here, too. Different and more missional. More committed than they were when they left. It's really an amazing phenomenon. So my one word of advice to you guys and to my own child is delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Your real answers will start to be transformed into his right answer. And you will truly live. Life is mission. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the one who is himself the greatest example of life lived in mission, your Son. Father, we praise you for the way that your Son, in love and obedience to you and and in love for a rebellious, undeserving group of folks, and that would be us, Lord, all of us forsook all of the comforts of heaven, all of the pleasures to which he is entitled, to which he deserves, took upon himself our flesh and walked amongst our broken world, healing and bringing a message of life, a life that is found in surrender and giving away in a moment in which we give away our sin and we give away ourselves too. We take this life that we've spent on ourselves and we say, no, it would be better spent for you. One in whom we place our faith and through that same faith are washed and made clean and new, are filled with his spirit, with the promise of life, and are sent on his mission into our families, into our businesses, into this community, and into this world to do things that will last forever. Lord, we thank you for that Savior who is Jesus and for the privilege it is to worship him and even now to come to his table where the emblems of his sacrifice are physically made real to us to our touch, to our taste, and with which we are called to remember him until he comes. We pray, Lord, now as we come to this table that we would meet him there. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.